If you need uh, a Bible, raise your hand, and these guys will be glad to give you one. You can take your Bibles and go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 2. Your Bibles and or your devices. First John chapter 2, that's the epistle at the end of the Bible, not the gospel. Wait, chick a treat too much last night. <laughs> too much candy or too many treats? That would be the question. How many of you went to the game at the Liberty Bowl? That's good. I'm impressed. You should be there. That's where God's team was playing. And they were in blue. It is fun if you're a University of Memphis fan right now. That, uh, we we need to enjoy it because our coach and our quarterback well, won't be here next year. But They called me and wanted to know if I had any eligibility left, and I said, yeah, you don't want it, but I got it. I played football one time. This was after I got out of college. I played in a flag football league for adults. That was a serious mistake. They put me at quarterback, and it was one of these deals where there was one guy playing, and if you – those of you who are longtime University of Memphis fans who may remember, his name was Jack Oliver, played uh, as an offensive lineman for the Tigers and played for the Minnesota Vikings. And I looked up, and he was on the line. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I, I have to work tomorrow. And they had this rule. If you were the quarterback, it was supposed to be flag. And if you've ever played flag with adults, it's not flag. Uh, the first play of the year, one of their guys was running down the sideline, and we had a young man who thought he could play football. And uh, you're just supposed to run over and grab their flag, and they're down. Well, he drives the guy, just wraps him up, and drives him out of bounds over the bench into the under the dirt. And I'm and and I'm thinking, uh oh, this is not going to be good. This is the first game of the year, first time anyone touched the football. So anyway, I, I'm playing quarterback on our team, and needless to say, we were not very good. We scored the entire season. I think we scored twice. And that's when I just threw it down there and said, somebody, please, you go catch this. But they had a rule that as the quarterback, if you had the ball in your hand and you and, and any time the ball left your hand or hit the ground, that they couldn't touch you. And it got so bad in that uh, one game that, that as soon as I'm standing back there and as soon as I said, hut, I took the ball and threw it down the ground. And went <laughs> I said, needless to say, we were not very good. But... Uh, a young man that's flinging them for the University of Memphis, is uh, he'll be flinging them on Sundays. He is an incredible football player. We are fortunate to have him. Everybody have a nice Halloween? I went to uh, Bartlett last night to the Halloween at our Bartlett campus. It was really fun to see just uh, uh, just place with jam-packed kids from the community and realizing that they really enjoyed themselves. And I ran into some kid, the, uh, kids that I haven't seen, since some of them since the 80s, that were in my youth group in the 80s, and they're now parents bringing their kids there. It was uh, it was just just kind of cool to see all that and, and uh, spend a few hours there. That was uh, really enjoyable. All right, First John chapter two. Everybody found it? 
All right, if you'll look at the, the top of your handout. By the way, let me mention in passing, because now that we're in November, there's a lot going to be going on and uh, different things coming up. And uh, next Sunday, for the Galloway thing today is being postponed the next uh, Sunday that we're doing. So if you still want to be part of that, you can see Tracy, Andy, or Russ, somebody, if you still want to be part of that, we're going to do it next Sunday after church. Uh, a lot of other things going on. We've got the help group coming up. We've got Thanksgiving, obviously. We've got uh, uh, Christmas and a lot of things going on. We'll be decorating the buildings. We'll be part of that. All that stuff you'll be able to see, but just please read and, and pay attention. Take part of what you want to be part of. And for those of you that are born again, we've got our annual, I know Peter really looks forward to this. This is his favorite time of the year. It's when we go to Christmas City. And uh, so some of you aren't excited about that. Anyway. That'll be coming up, so you can watch for all that exciting stuff. All right, if you, as we uh, continue in our series of the fellowship of love, what we share in common as we love each other is part of the, we're looking at right now, the, the family of God, what it means that we are a family. What, what does it mean that we are part of each other? We'll use terms, it's not an accident that the Bible uses terms like brother and sister, and we are the bride of Christ, and we are the family of God, and, and God is our Father. Those are not accidental terms that just the writers of Scripture came up with so they would have some way of explaining this. It, those were intentional terms by the Holy Spirit given to them on a relational level when Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray. How did he say, say start? Our Father which are in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And everything about prayer in all of Scripture, that's the focus, is on our Father honoring, glorifying him and seeking his will, not ours, because he is the Father, we are the children, and that's the way it should be. And so, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we share spiritual DNA. As we mentioned last week, whether you like me or not, I'm your brother in Christ, or I'm that crazy uncle that you got to deal with, but I'm still part of your family. I'm your brother in Christ, and we will spend eternity together as Christians. So you'll notice the theme of this series is that Jesus commands us, John 15, 12, on your handout, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And when you think about, dwell on, meditate upon how Jesus loved us, that it was unconditional because we did not, Bible, the Bible makes it very clear in Romans and in many other places that we did not love him in return. All you got to do is, is read the Gospels and read the stories. He loved us when we did not love him. He loved us despite our rebellion. He loved us anyway and he reached down and he came and he took on human flesh and died in our place, paid a debt we owed that we could not pay, he paid it in our stead and bought for us paradise. Adam lost it, Jesus regained it, paradise lost, paradise gained in Jesus Christ. So he comes and dies for us, redeems us, and corporately calls us his bride. We are his church, we are his body. Everything is very personal, intimate, relational terms, so we understand what it means to be his family. So we've talked about on your handout, number one, the commandment to the family, that it's old, that it's new, and that it's true. Now, what I want to focus on today is number two and number three. Number two is the contrast he then gives to the family. So let's read verses 9 through 11 and then talk about it. First John 2, 9. As a believer, 
The believer who says he is in the light or born again and hates his brother is in darkness until now. The believer who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So what he's going to do in this this passage, as we're beginning to look at this, he's giving these contrasts to the family of God about what it means to live as a believer in interaction and relation with each other as the body of Christ. And then as we are witnessing and, and sharing a testimony to a lost world, what it means to be a Christian. Because you, you can throw out all kinds of terms. It, the important thing is, what do you mean when you use a word? I can, for example, we've talked about this before, but I can say to you that I love you. Well, what does that mean? Because I can also tell you I love to play golf and I love the University of Memphis. And, and if I had a pet, I love my, my uh, growing up I had two dogs. I love my dogs. And I love my wife. And so what is, when I say that, what does it mean? We're really going to focus on that today because we, you hear people throw it out there all the time that God is love and as, a, as Christians we love each other. Well, what does that really mean? And that's, that's why this is so important that we understand this family concept that what it means to be part of the same family of God, what it means to genuinely, genuinely love each other. So what John is going to do is use these three contrasts, light versus darkness, love versus hate, and sight versus blindness to get this point across. To love my brother genuinely, to genuinely love fellow believers, proves that I have genuinely been converted, that I'm not just giving it lip service. He who says he loves his brother but loves him is in the light but hates his brother is actually in the darkness. Now, for example, if you're married, raise your hand. Okay, leave your hands up. Now, if you love your spouse, put your hand up even higher. See, some of you didn't do that. Now, if you, men only, men only, women, you put your hands down. Okay, some, there you go, that's good. Now, men who really love your wives, get that hand up there. See, now, I, oh, that hurt, but. Now, Clint's going to stand with his hand up the entire service because he's a smart man. Praise God, I love my wife. I like that brother right there. He's learning how to play cards. He never knew he could play cards before. He's learning. So, Mary and I have been married 42 years. And she loves me with all her being. There's no doubt about that. Because she, and, <laughs> and I do as well. Now, in I don't care how long you've been married. 42 years, I'm still, I was sharing my class this morning, I'm still learning about women, I guess I will be, and finally when I get to heaven, I'm going to say, Lord, can we just take a little time and explain to women? Can, can you do that for me? And, but one of the beauties of understanding a love relationship when you're married as Christians is understanding that you're not always going to get along, and, but you love anyway. You see, society defines love as reciprocal. God defines it as an act 
the will, a choice to do what's right, even though sometimes you don't feel like doing what's right. Sometimes you feel like slapping that other person. Sometimes you feel like punching his lights out. I'm just explaining for Mary how her, her feelings. No, sometimes that's just, that's just part. And even, even in, in friend relationships or sibling relationships, wow, siblings. I mean, even as adults, siblings, don't sometimes you just want to punch your brother out? I've got two brothers that every time I see him, my first thought is he needs to be punched in the mouth. He really does. And uh, I remember when we were growing up, my, I have a brother that's three years older than me that, that I mean, he was the quintessential hippie. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Woods, he went to Woodstock, he went to Canada so he wouldn't be drafted. I mean, he did it all. And I remember, I remember uh, when he turned 18 and he told my dad that, uh, that I don't have to do what you tell me anymore. And when he woke up off the floor, <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating, my dad picked him up and punched him right here and he dropped him. And I was 15, he turned and looked at me and I said, hit him again! You know he needs to kick him. Hey, Dad, you know he took your Mustang to Florida a couple of weeks ago. My dad didn't know that, and I shared that with him. My brother and one of his buddies just took my dad's 1968 Mustang and drove it to Florida just because they wanted because my dad was a little out of it, and they thought that'd be fun to do. And I'm like, I, I, and so as a result of my brother being such a knucklehead, I never got to drive. I know you feel sorry for me, don't you? 18 years old, I'm riding a bicycle to high school, to work, to basketball practice. Everything I did, I had to ride a bike at 18 unless I had a buddy pick me up. And then finally I met Mary, and thank God her parents let her drive, and so I took advantage of that. But first car I owned was a 1963, whoa, almost bought it, 1963 Corvair, not Vet. Vare. A uh, fine automobile, had the engine in the back, and used a quart of oil a day. And I'm not exaggerating. I kept a case of oil in the trunk, and I would add one every morning when I got up. So my dad gave it to me when I started college. That's real big of him because he had just wrecked it. The entire right side was caved in. The heater only worked in your left ankle. Mary and I dated in this car. That's how you know you love somebody when you can... It, the fuel pump went out in when we the inspection line down on uh, Washington, wherever Manassas, whatever that street is. We're in line. Back then, an hour and a half to go through inspection. We're in line, and the fuel pump goes out. The door didn't open on the passenger side where Mary sat. And I said, Mary, we got to push this car across the street to juvenile court. She goes, we got to what? I said, you're going to get over here in this seat. And we're dating at this point. If you don't mind, please, Mary. Get over here in this seat while I, all 125 pounds of me, I'm going to push this across the street because if we don't, these people in line behind are going to start killing somebody. Now, all of that was caused by my brother's stupidity. But what is he to this day? He's still my what? And he's still stupid, but he's my brother. And I love him. I care about him. I want him to come to know Jesus. I want him to know, know the peace and the hope that I know. I want him to go to heaven. I have two brothers. My younger brother's the same way. My younger brother's what I call an EOE. He's an expert on everything. You, you can't tell him anything. But I want him to know Jesus. I want him to die and go to heaven. I want him to know peace, hope. I love them. Now, they need to be punched in the mouth every time I see them, but I love them. Now, 
back to us. We need for the world to understand that the relationship that we have as Christians is not lip service. It's not we're religious together. We just happen to go to church together. It's that we genuinely are looking out for the best interest of each other simply because we're in the family of God together. And we want others to see that and be drawn to that. Jesus made it very clear. The world will be interested in what you have to say about me when they see that you love each other. That you you put up with your foils and your flaws and your sin because you love each other. Let me explain exactly what he means by that here in 1 John. Look at verse 9 again. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Verse 10. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Verse 9, verse 10. He who loves his brother abides or lives in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. Let me explain this hates versus loves thing because it's really important that you get this. We all know it's wrong to hate. Growing up, be brutally frank, my son is writing a, a book right now about night, living 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee, and what it was like, the Martin Luther King assassination, and what, what it was like to be white versus black in Memphis in 1968, and we've been talking about it a lot. And growing up in the home that I grew up in, my dad was from Myrtle, Mississippi, and, and, and uh, my mom was from rural West Tennessee, and I went to a public high school, huge high school, we had one African-American in our entire school that I know of. And my dad's attitude toward people of a different color is they were inferior to us. We, my father was a bigot. His family, were they were bigoted. That's what I was taught. That's what I thought was correct until I started playing basketball. And I would play basketball any place I could play, Geisman Community Center, Davis Community Center, any place I could go and play basketball, I would go. But what color do you think many of the people who played basketball were? They weren't the same color I was. And I was a freshman at the University of Memphis. And they were really good in 1972, 73. And I'd go to the field house and play basketball with Larry Finch and, and guys like that. And, 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 I, and I made friends. That, and I discovered that my dad was wrong. Now, by the time I got to college, I was a Christian. And I, and I knew in my heart that it was wrong to hate. We all understand that it's wrong to hate. But that's not what this is talking about here. Let me explain what this is so you'll really understand what's going on. The the word hates here in Greek in verse 9 means having an attitude of indifference, of no concern, of apathy. Just, it's not my problem. Not my issue. The attitude would be, I have a reactive response. In other words, when he says here, verse 9, one more time, he who says he's in the light, he who says I am a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, the light, I'm born again. And hates his brother is in darkness until now. What he's saying is, if your attitude toward other believers is, I'm not really that interested. If you know, if if, if it becomes a problem or an issue between me and you, then I'll deal with it. But by and large, I'm just kind of indifferent to you or apathetic toward you. Your life is your life, and your problems are your problems. I got my own problems. I'm just kind of rocking along, doing the best I can. That's what it means by hate here. It's having an attitude of indifference or apathy toward fellow believers. Notice the contrast. Light versus darkness. 
Love versus hate. Christian love on the other side, in contrast, is defined in the Bible this way. Rather than being indifferent toward you, I genuinely seek your best good. No matter whether you respond to me or not, no matter whether you care what happens to me, you may not like me, you may dislike me, you may not want anything to do with me. It doesn't matter. My attitude toward you is I want God's best for you, even if it requires a sacrificial commitment of something on my part to help you. And I don't mean that could be financial, it could be time, it could be just just me saying to you, how can I help you? How can I pray for you? What's going on? Can it, it, if, is there something I can do for you? And it's proactive, not reactive. The idea of loving each other. God loved us. We love fellow believers. The idea is I am proactive. I, Not that I'm getting into your business, but that I care about you. And I'll say to you, how are you doing? When I say to you, how are you doing? I mean, how, how many times just today have you said to someone, how are you? A lot. What did And I realize sometimes we just do that. A Christian's mindset is, when I say to you, how are you? I really care. I want the best for you. I want you to know that I'm genuinely concerned for your personal well-being as my brother or sister in Christ. I want God's best for you. Someone has said, and I don't know who it is because it was anonymous in the book I read it, but it said this. Indifference is the cruelest form of hate. Indifference. That I just don't care. Now look at verse 9 one more time. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. It's easy to say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But if I'm indifferent toward other believers and I don't really care, I'm not interested, not that I'm doing anything bad. Toward you, but that I'm just not—I just don't care. What he's saying is, you need to re-examine where you are, because when you're born again, when the Holy Spirit enters your life, when you become a Christian, you look at people differently. You look at them now, like, how can I pray for you? What's going on in your life? I don't want you to have this struggle with your children. I'm sorry things are tough on you at work. Uh, I hate it that you're having to go through this surgery or you're facing this difficult time physically or mentally, emotionally, whatever it might be, that when you hurt, that's why the term body is used. Paul uses that term to explain what the church is, that it's a body and that we need each other, that when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. So if you're hurting, if I genuinely love you, if you're hurting in some arena in your life, what does that mean about me? I'm hurting also. I'm hurting also. Because you are my what? Brother or sister in Christ. We're part of the same family. And the whole idea of light versus darkness is a great illustration. Look at verse 10. He who loves his brother abides in the light or lives in the light and there is no cause for stumbling for him abides in the light. That means you live 
in the light, in the reality that you are Jesus Christ. You are in the, you're not Jesus Christ. You live in the reality that you're in Christ. You are a Christian all the time and that therefore your life is about looking at others and saying, what can I sacrifice for you that would help you spiritually? How can I reach out to you? How can I share truth with you? How can I show you the love of God? They asked Jesus one time, why did you come? It's maybe one of the most powerful statements he ever uttered. They asked him, why did you come? He said, I'm sent from heaven. They said, why did you come? He said, I came to die, to serve, and to die. I came to serve and to die. That's who we are. We die to self, to serve each other when you're born again. I don't look at you like, what can I get from you? I look at you like, what can I do for you? It's proactive, not reactive. It's unselfish, not selfish. It's unconditional, no strings attached. I just love you because you exist. Even, again, if you don't respond. Even if you don't like me. Even if you don't love me in in response. It does not matter. Did most people respond to Jesus with an attaboy, I love you, and thanks a lot? No. Jesus made it clear. The world hates me, therefore it's going to what? It's going to hate you. Now, I realize by the world, we're going to talk about that next week, he was talking about the non-believing world system. But also, if you examine the Gospels and history closely, when Jesus needed his followers, his closest friends the most, where were they? They deserted him. You're pretty much alone. But he loved them anyway. The Bible says he loved them to the end. And that's what we do. Why? Because we're Christians. We're in the family of God. It starts with us. And then it goes out. Starts with us. And then it goes out. It starts with us. Loving each other. I don't you notice one other thing. Verse 10. The end of it. There is no cause for stumbling in him. The one who's in the light. I'm living in the light and I'm looking with eyes of light, not darkness. Darkness is, is it's all about me. I'm lost. I don't, all I care about is me. Light is my eyes are open. I'm looking around. I want to do what's best for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I love this little phrase here. There is no cause for stumbling in him. We get our Greek word scandal from that word stumbling. I mean, the English word scandal, it's something is a scandal. It comes from this word right here in Greek, no stumbling block. And in Romans 14, the Apostle Paul put it this way, resolve this. It said, stop judging each other and resolve to do this, that I will not be a stumbling block for my brothers. That That Randy will not be the excuse they use to reject Jesus, that Above all in my life, I, they know that I care about them. We're not going to dot every I and cross every T the same, but I'm not going to, I'm going to choose what's best for you over what I want. Let me kind of explain this to you and help, help you with it a little bit. One of the things that really hurting the church and the evangelical church, I think, in America sometimes is, even for believers, is... We constantly seek to push the envelope and say, all right, what, what, what can I do? What can I get away with and still be okay with God? 
as opposed to having an attitude, Lord, what do you want me to do in this relationship with this person? For example, some Christians choose to drink alcohol. Others choose to be teetotalers. But I know churches that have split over that issue. Now, Randy and Mary, or at least Randy isn't, no, I'm just teaching. Randy and Mary have chosen to be teetotalers. We do not drink alcohol. But I'm not telling you, I can't look you in the eye and tell you that to drink alcohol is a sin. This sermon is not on alcohol. I'm making it as an example. What I tell you is that one of the reasons that, one of the primary reasons I don't drink is my father was an alcoholic, my brother is an alcoholic, and I'm afraid if I started drinking, that's what I would be. Doesn't, I don't know whether I would or not, but I know I'm crazy. With, I, don't, I don't need anything to make me crazier. Also, the Bible makes it very clear that I have to be in control of the Holy Spirit all the time. And I don't know how many drinks it would take for me to be out of control. Probably not many. Because I'm crazy already. So I choose not to do that. Another reason I choose is what's going on here. The stumbling block. I don't want someone else to say, well, look, Randy drinks, so it's okay for me to drink. And maybe that person can't control it. Maybe they, maybe they do have a problem. Maybe they shouldn't be. So I choose not to. We made a decision years ago about what we would watch, what we wouldn't watch. And, and uh, back when uh, we went to the movies a lot, we made a decision we would never go to any movie that was rated R. But I'm not going to tell you that Randy's decision is right for you. If you can go and handle it, then that's fine. But we decided that we couldn't, and so we didn't. Now, now we just don't go to the movies at all because... Uh, we just wait for them to watch them on television. But that's just, again, I have a dear friend who's a, a pastor. His family, years ago, they took all the televisions out of their house and said, we're not watching TV at all. Now, he never said, never made an issue out of it, never said that you want to be spiritual, then you should do like me and remove all the TVs from your house. That wasn't his attitude. He's, for me, that was my decision. So what's going on here? There's a principle in the Bible called freedom versus what's best. I'm free to do certain things in Christ. Like I could go to a casino. I'm never going to be tempted to gamble. It's just, I'm not. That's something I want to do. But maybe the person, let's say, maybe I said to somebody, let's go down to the casino and see Sinbad, the comedian. I think he's funny. Let's go see him when he's at the casino. And so I take somebody, maybe the guy that's with me doesn't have the same, it's not a problem for him. If it's a problem for him, I'm free to do it because it's not an issue for me. It doesn't, it doesn't cause me to get into something that would be a, a sin for me. But if, let's say my friend has a struggle with that. Should I then take him to that place? No. So what I have to sacrifice is my freedom to do that because I don't want to be a stumbling block for him in whatever the arena might be. So what he's talking about here, if I love you, I'm going to, do what's best for you, not what pleases me. And I hope I've got that, that point across. I know that, that we've talked a lot about it, but it's so vital. The hate here is not talking about vicious racism. It's talking about just being indifferent toward each other. Just being indifferent. In the light, I see clearly I want to be constantly looking at what's best for you and not be your cause for stumbling. I don't envy you. For example, let's say God gives you a promotion this week. Somehow you get this great promotion at work and now you're making tons of money. What should be my attitude toward you? 
How come that clown makes all that money? I ought to be making it. I'm smarter and brighter and cooler. No, my attitude should be what? Praise God, that happened to you. I'm happy for you. I'm happy for your family. I'm thrilled and excited for you. Not, should have happened to me, but I'm happy for you. God has blessed you in that arena. And I'm thrilled for you. No envy, joy for you. Something tough happens to you, as we said earlier. I hurt because you're part of me. I hurt when you hurt. When you're excited and happy about something happening to you, I'm excited and happy for you. No malice, no grudges. First Peter chapter 4, the Bible says this. Above all things, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. We're all going to sin because we're not perfect. Sometimes we're going to sin toward each other. I'm going to do something that offends you or hurts you. I may lie about you. I may say something that hurts you, offends you in some way. Your response should be love, despite that, because love will cover that. That's a different issue about me dealing with the sin. We've already talked about confession. That's another time. What we're talking about now is how do I love? If you sin against me, my response is not, I'm going to get you back. It's, I love you. Again, the whole family mindset. In the New Testament, I'm just going to read these quotes. Just listen. The New Testament, everything I'm about to read to you is a direct quote from God in the New Testament to us. Prefer one another. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not judge one another. Receive one another. Admonish one another. Edify one another. Confess your faults to one another. Bear the burdens of one another. Be hospitable to one another. It's called the one another's in the New Testament. What's the picture you get? Be hospitable, bear the burdens, confess your faults, edify, admonish, receive, do not judge, be of the same mind, prefer one another, love one another. What's the picture you get there? It's not about me, it's about what? You. You get a picture. 1 Corinthians 13, when you read it, and everybody's read it, every wedding you've ever gone to, they probably read it. Love bears all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. What you get when you read 1 Corinthians 13 is a picture of Jesus Christ. For God so loved that he gave. The mindset for us is God so loved me that I'm going to give. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to care. I'm going to reach out because I'm interested in you. All right, let's quickly look at number three and we will be done on your handout. So you transition into verse 12 about the family of God. Verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. What you're seeing in verses 12 through 14 is the children of the family. And he lays out three levels, little children, fathers, and young men. And what, you, what, what he's picturing here about the family of God is different maturity levels. That you should go from being little children to being young men 
and being with fathers as you grow chronologically, just like you would physically, but you should also grow spiritually. Let me show you how he, how he puts this together. Verse 12, let's start there. I write to you, little children. This first phrase, little children, here means in Greek, born ones. Because your sins are forgiven. You see that in the verse? So here's what he's doing. He's saying, I'm writing to you, verse 12, I'm writing to you, those of you who are born ones, or Christians in general, the whole family. I'm writing to you, the family of God, the born ones. Now, all of you are to mature. In Hebrews chapter 5, the Bible says this. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. Everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. And that is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. Here's the point the writer of Hebrews and then transitions into what John is saying. He's saying by now, he's writing to these adults, you ought to be eating solid food. You ought to be teaching the deeper things of the word of God to others, but you're still having to eat baby food. You're still having to have someone teach you again the very basics of the faith. You are to grow. It doesn't mean you have to be an old man. It means if you've been born again for any period of time, you should be maturing in your faith and not have to be talking again about the very simple, basic things of the faith. You ought to have those down, kind of like going to get a college degree. You, you process through. By the time you get to a senior, you ought to know my degrees in economics. By the time I was a senior, I knew a whole lot more about economics than I knew as a freshman. But as a believer of, in my case, 45 years, should I not know a lot more, a lot more now than I did in 1970 when I became a Christian? Yes, that's the whole point. So look how he lays it out in 1 John. So he says, fathers, Said Greek, what you see here are six sentences of commendation, each beginning with right. So let's deal with the fathers first. Fathers, mature believers, that's the idea. Verse 14. I've written to you fathers because you've known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you young men. Let's deal with the fathers. Mature believers. You've known Jesus, this means by experience. You've been saved for a while. You've matured in your faith. You've gone through the ups and the downs of being a believer. You are mature. You faithfully walk with Jesus over a period of time. And by the way, again, you don't have to be chronologically old to be mature. We have an elder that's in his 30s. We have elders in their 40s. I've known elders in, their, in other churches in their late 20s. You can mature to the point you're ready. You don't have, I know guys that are my age in their 60s who, who've been saved, but they're not mature. They're not growing. They're not, they're not, they're still focused on the things that aren't important. They're, they're selfish. It's about me. They haven't, they're not growing. He said, you are to grow. You are to mature. You get the senses develop. You discern through experience. So then why? So you could turn around and lead someone else. You could turn around and reach out to bring along a younger man, bring along a child. 
to help them mature in the faith. Why? Because if you're one of the mature ones, at some point, you're not going to be here anymore. And the next group needs to step up to the plate. You're passing the baton as you teach them. Young men, verse 13 and 14. I write to you, young men, middle of 13, because you've overcome the wicked one. Verse 14, middle of it. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the wicked one. So the young men would be the ones that are right in the thick of what's going on. And as you, again, as you mature, you're also a big part of this group. But the young men have not reached the level yet of the fathers to that maturity level, but they're in the battle. They're out there fighting and they're growing and they go to the mature ones to learn, okay, I'm facing this. How do I deal with it? I'm going through this. How do I deal with that? The mature ones teach the young men who teach whom? The children. And so it's vital that I understand if I'm a child, I want to grow to be a young man. If I'm a young man, I want to grow to be a what? I'm a a father. I want to grow to mature. I want to move on. One of the things I share all the time with people I've said this many times, I haven't said it lately, so I'll say it again. If you don't get anything out of what I have to say, get this. Christians do not live in the past. Paul talked about it so much. I do not rest on the past, both positive and negative. I don't rest on my past laurels, and I don't dwell on the bad things that happened to me. That God uses them all. Romans 8, 28, for good, and I am to stay focused on the now and the forward. I love what Paul said in Philippians 3. This thing I do, one thing I do, I press on for the mark of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing I do, focus. I am never satisfied where I am in Christ. Never. Because there's always a sin in my life I need to overcome. There's always a challenge to help someone else. Remember, this is about loving the family. It's about you. It's not about me. If I'm going to be the best pastor I can be for you, the best friend, the best brother in Christ, the best whatever, husband, grandfather, father, whatever our relationship, friend, whatever the relationship is, if I'm going to be the best that it that I could be in Christ, I've got to constantly be growing. Never be satisfied. Never. If you're a father, one of the primary, or a mother even, but one of the primary reasons you should never be satisfied is your kids are going to ask you questions you don't know the answers to. And if, if you just say, oh, shut up, we ain't talking about that. That don't cut it. You got to say to them, well, let's talk about why you think that way. Let's, let's go through this. And, and then I may not know the answer, but I'll, I'll ask Rhett and I'll get back with you. I'll find out. I'll go to the word of God. Is that important? I could tell you, I could give you example after example after example of, of men that I now know that are in their 40s, some in their 50s, who were in church their whole lives. They were there every time the door was open, they were in church and they were involved and they were doing things. If you said, are they a Christian? The answer would be, absolutely. And then today you look at them, they, want nothing, they don't believe in God. They want nothing to do with it. It's not for them. No one ever challenged them, no one to ask the hard questions. Again, if you've got adolescents, teenagers, kids, even now, 10 and 11 years old, they're bombarded with incredible things by their peers and and other places. 
particularly with media and access to everything, challenge them to ask you the hard questions. Do not ignore it because they're going to leave your home somewhere around 18 to 40. They're going to leave your home. And you want them ready to go out into the world for Christ. Challenge them right now to ask you the hard questions because it's important that they mature, the young men, that they, that they hit the battle, that they hit the battle. All three groups. Look at the family principles at the bottom of your outline, and then we're going to be done. As we love each other. Number one, we examine ourselves by the mirror of God's word. Everything comes back to the word of God. We examine ourselves. Am I loving the way God would have me love? Number two, you elevate scripture to the final arbiter over our lives in everything. Three, you exalt Jesus to his rightful place in every area of the family. Every area. As believers. This whole idea of family I'm going to share this. I hope it's okay. I don't know. And then uh, we're going to pray and be done. We're talking about one of, the, one of the reasons this is so passionate for me, and I guess part of it is just being on staff of a church for be 32 years in April that I've, I've worked for Central North slash Christ Church and, and been out here, be nine years in December. And, and I love what I do. And, and those of you that know me know I really am crazy. And, and I love meeting people. I love being around people. I, I, I love finding out where people are and, share, and talking to them, just, whether they're Christians or not, but particularly people that, that I'm their pastor. I just love getting to know them. And being part of the same family, it, sometimes you, you, you have hurts that you go through. And I was sharing with my class this morning, and, and I want to share with all of you. We have an elder in our church named Mark Wilson. Some of you don't, most of you don't even know who Mark is. Mark is an elder at our Bartlett campus, and, and I've known Mark for years. 55 years old, if you look at him six months ago, you just thought, well, that's a stout man right there, a hardworking guy. Cancer is eating him up, even as I stand here and speak with you. If the Lord doesn't miraculously heal him, his treatments are not working. If the Lord doesn't miraculously heal him, he probably won't be here six months from now. And I find myself every day, sometimes yesterday I spent about an hour just praying for my brother, my friend, Mark. See, the world doesn't understand that. Mark Wilson is not just a guy, guy that I serve with as a pastor, teacher of a church. He's my friend. He's my brother in Christ. Now, Mark's going to get to go to heaven. I know that. But the way he handles this, he is handling it the way his wife Pam is handling it. The testimony to those of us in Red could share with you and Chad could and others who know them, the way they are handling it is such a powerful testimony to the rest of us to buck up. Hey, you got nothing to complain about, Randy. Let's look at Mark. And every time you talk to him or text him or you're around him, here's what he says. All I want to do is glorify Jesus. All I want to do is glorify Jesus. Mark's not a preacher. Mark's a guy who worked on trucks for a living. Tough guy. Tough guy. You ask him about Jesus, though, he lights up, even though his body's being ravaged by cancer. That's what it means to be part of a family, isn't it? 
We love each other. We love each other. Let's pray.